You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Psalm 146. So these are known, these last five psalms are known as the Hallelujah Psalms. Any guesses why? If you have your Bibles, just in it, look at Psalm 146, look at the first line. Look at Psalm 147, look at the first line, look at Psalm 148, Psalm 149, and Psalm 150. They all begin with the Hebrew word, hallelujah. They are known as the praise the Lord, the hallelujah psalms, and what wonderful psalms they are. We're just going to do Psalm 146 tonight, and praising the Lord is really the theme of all of these final psalms in the Psalter, so they are wonderful. And as we think about this, this term, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we know that one day all heaven will be filled with this sound. All earth will be filled with this sound. Praise the Lord. Not that I wanted to spoil it for you, but in Revelation 19, if you could just turn there with me, please. Revelation 19, there's a very famous passage there called the Four Hallelujahs. I want to just read them to you now with that theme of heaven being filled with the sound of hallelujah. Revelation 19, verse 1 to 5 says, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up for ever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Now what I find fascinating about this is usually when you hear the voice and it's described as being mighty peals of thunder, it's referring to God speaking in the heavens. But if you look at it here, it's being talked about as being the praise of of people worshipping God in the heavens and saying hallelujah. And the only way I could imagine that you get something even as loud as this description implies is that there are just countless millions upon millions of faithful believers, saints, angels, all the hosts of heaven singing hallelujah for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. That is ultimately our future and that is where we're heading and these psalms are a little foretaste of that Even on the earth, when God set up the nation of Israel to represent him on this earth, to try and represent heaven. Do you remember on Sundays we we talked about the way he copied the heavenly tabernacle with the tabernacle in the wilderness? It's also no surprise, I believe, that as heaven resounds with the sound of hallelujah, he had a whole tribe in the nation of Israel put aside to say hallelujah night and morning. That was ultimately the purpose of the Levites in amongst all their duties. 1 Chronicles 23 verse 30. They are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord and likewise at evening. And that little expression there, praise the Lord, that's hallelujah in Hebrew. That was their purpose. Every morning, every night, praise the Lord. Again, copying what goes on in the heavenlies. So I believe it's very important that we understand this concept and this principle, and we're going to look at that as we go through this. However, I find it fascinating, this word, hallelujah. Everyone knows that word, don't they? It's, I, you could probably go into pretty much any culture in the world and say hallelujah, and people would understand what you mean by it, simply because of its cultural acceptance in everything, really, media, film, plays, drama, 
all languages, most people have an expression similar. And it is, simply does mean to praise the Lord. And as Spurgeon said, praise is the end of all our prayer and all our preaching. Anything that I say from the pulpit, anything that we're praying in our own private lives, ultimately should end in hallelujah. Because ultimately one day we know it will end in hallelujah. Because that's the sound of heaven and that's what it will always be. Let's look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So that first line, three words in English, one word in Hebrew, hallelujah. Actually, it's a contraction of two words if you know the word hallelujah. So it's hallel, which is the Hebrew word which means to praise, and then it's yah, which is the Hebrew word for God. It's God's name, basically. But let's look at the little first part, hallel. It means to praise. However, as Hebrews are all related to a root word, the root word is halal, which has the connotation of boasting. And I find this fascinating when you think about it like that. Boasting of the Lord. To be so enamoured of, what does it tell us in the New Testament? We boast in the Lord, doesn't it? If you're going to boast of anything, boast that you know me. And this is kind of what praise is. We know the Lord. He is everything. Psalm 34, verse 2. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. We boast in the Lord. That is part of our praise. It's part of what it means. Hallelujah. And then the second part, Yah. If you recognize that name, some people pronounce the name of God as Yahweh. A lot of people don't like to try and say that in case they get it wrong. A lot of people will just say Adonai. You might notice translate Bible translations do that. Jewish people thought it was too, the name was too holy to say, so they made it Adonai. Or some people would say the name, the great name. This is all referring to Yahweh here. But that is his name there. That is the holy name of God. So we need to be careful when we say the term hallelujah. Because the Lord told us not to take the Lord's name in vain. So when you say that word, it's not, it is a word that means to praise God. But to us, it's a word that has the personal name of God in it. The name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So we don't say hallelujah lightly. It's, we don't want to risk taking the Lord's name in vain there. We say it in the context that it's me- meant to be. And that is a lesson for the world, I would say. Praise the Lord. Now when it says that, it's actually, the verb form is an imperative which means it's actually a command to his people at the same time. It's not just a declaration that someone is praising the Lord. It is a command in many ways. Praise the Lord, you his people. That's what it's saying there. Now think, this command, this little phrase, hallelujah, has gone out throughout the whole world, made famous really by song, if we're going to be frank about it. We've just heard in heaven that it was mainly from song, people singing and praising and worshipping God. So it's no surprise that It's gone out throughout the whole earth in song too. I'm just going to list three of them. The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Who knows that song? You might not know it by that name. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's trampling down the vintage. And then the chorus of that, glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. I almost broke into song there because I remember that from my school days, but I restrained myself there. But that's a very famous song. That was Churchill's favourite song. It was played at his funeral in St Paul's Cathedral in 1965. If you're a football fan, you may know that chant. Many football clubs adopt that song. Of course, they change the lyrics in not very good ways. But that is the same song that they're getting it here, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's been covered by almost everyone. Johnny Cash, Beach Boys, Whitney Houston. Names that means it's sold millions of copies. Millions of people have heard this phrase 
It was sung at Obama's second inauguration most, quite recently. And this is just one song. Another one, Handel's Messiah in the UK, probably more famous, but Handel's Messiah. The wonderful oratorio, basically the King James put to music, much of it from the book of Revelation, I might add, that we will look at here. There's a famous part of it called the Hallelujah Chorus. And it is just wonderful if you've ever heard it played. Let me read to you just a few parts of it. It starts off simply by just the singers just singing hallelujah ten times over. Hallelujah, hallelujah. But obviously with music and it sounds better than that. And then it says, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord. You may know that. That's a verse from Revelation. And of his Christ and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. King of kings, Lord of lords. King of kings, Lord of lords. He shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. And then hallelujah, hallelujah, ten, time, ten more times. It's, a, it's just a wonderful piece of music if you've ever heard it played properly. But, and that's been played, reproduced in theatres, I mean, still on today actually, I check that every year this is played in theatres all over the place, Handel's Messiah, reproductions, movies, type, type it into Spotify, you'll see, it's gone all over the world, multiple covers from the likes of people like Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, Bon Jovi, it's been on TV shows, The O.C., The West Wing, it was used in the Shrek movie, I mean, this is just a song that has gone all over the place, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Now, Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, have you ever heard that one too? It's another very famous one. This has also been covered by just more people than I could even really list. In fact, sorry, those names I mentioned were actually referring to Leonard Cohen's song, not Handel's Messiah. It'd be quite hard to cover Handel's Messiah like that. But do you remember 2008? I remember watching this when X Factor was really big in this country. Do you remember that? 2008, do you remember Alexandra Burke? Her famous single that she did. She sang Hallelujah, and it became Christmas number one that year. I think it's still one of the best-selling singles that ever came from that show all those years ago. And that is Hallelujah. And they put all those three together. All those TV shows, all those singles, all those charts, all those awards, all those movies for a lot of time. And I just find it crazy that they are all using the ancient biblical phrase hallelujah that is a command to praise the God of Israel you really can't say that no one's heard the message everyone's heard that song everyone's heard the command to praise the Lord at some point in their life yes they never thought about it in that context as song as a song I'm aware of that but we know that's the name of God when people sing it they're using the name of God the God of Israel. And one day I believe that will be on their record when they stand before the Lord at some point. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He adds this little phrase, O my soul. And this phrase acts like an emphatic, almost like a location for where this praise is resonating from. It is coming from his own soul. His soul is the repository of such praise. And that should be a good reminder for all of us here as we use this term, as we sing, as we live our lives, it's our souls that praise the Lord. He goes on in verse 2, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. That first word, it says, while I live, more literally, even than the NSB would render it here, it's with my life that it's saying there. And I like that, actually. I praise the Lord with my life. 
That's like saying that with everything I do, every aspect of all the affairs that I busy myself in throughout the day that I'm involved in while I'm on this earth, they shall be characterized by hallelujah, by praising the Lord. It's wonderful. The psalmist here considers it a right. It's a command, it's a right, but it's also a privilege for the believer. We like to to praise the Lord because we love the Lord, because we know the Lord loves us. It's a reciprocal relationship there. There's a lovely story of an old Methodist preacher. You know I'm always sharing old Methodist stories. You know where a lot of my reading goes on. He was a singer, a very famous singer, and he got diagnosed with tongue cancer. And he went to an operation. He was going to have his tongue removed. And he was on the operating table with his physician and his doctor in the room. And he held up his hand to stop the proceedings. And he said, can I ask the doctor a question? And the operator stepped aside and waited patiently as the doctor came over to him. And he said, Doctor, shall I ever sing again after this? And the doctor simply shook his head, held his hand, and the man started crying as the tears poured down his face. He was trembling and convulsing. The sick man then appealed to the doctor just to help him to sit up on the operating table. The physician complied with this. And he said, I have had many good times in my life singing God's praises, and now I'm told I can never do that again. I have one more song to sing, which will be my last, and it will be a song of gratitude and praise to God as well. And then from that operating table, this old Methodist sat up and sang the hymn by Isaac Watts that's so familiar to many, I'll praise my maker while I have breath. Which if you know that hymn, it's a hymn based on Psalm 146, which is what we're reading here. It begins, I'll praise my maker while while I've breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. My days of praise shall never be passed while life and thought and being last or immortality endures. He knew, even though he didn't have his tongue anymore, that he wouldn't be able to praise the Lord. He knew his life was still going to be an act of praise. And he knew one day he would be singing with the Lord again in glory, praising God. Verse 3, do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. So now we have a contrast. It's a reminder now not to place our hope in men. Do not trust in princes, in mere mortals. Princes there, the term is really referring to a leader of influence. We would probably be equivalent to what we might term a politician today, in fact. This is a very good reminder for our world at this point. Very good reminder for the church at this point, I would say. We do not trust in mere men. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not saying we don't trust anyone at all, ever. It's not saying that what people say cannot be true. But what it is saying is that we do not put our hope in our future in mortal men. And the reason is they will die. They will return to the earth, as it says there. And it says, in that very day, his thoughts will perish. Thoughts there is the idea of his plans. The idea that this is trying to get at is whatever fanciful vision a leader for this world may have, a prince of this world may have for their city, for their kingdom, whatever it may be, it will die with them, really, ultimately, in the scheme of things. The vision for this world is God's vision. That is the only one that is eternal. He is the only one that we place our trust and our hope in. Verse 5, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, and the Lord sets the prisoners free. 
So now he contrasts again. He said, we don't trust in man, we don't trust in princes. Ultimately, man is going back to the ground. Yes, his spirit will be with the Lord, but ultimately the vision of mortal men does not live on, only the vision of God does. And now he gives us reasons to trust in God. And the rest of this psalm is pretty much reasons why we trust in God and God alone. Firstly, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob? How blessed, often translated how happy. This is a phrase, it is a blessed thing to put your hope in the Lord, to cast your burdens upon him, to lay everything on him, to be satisfied in him. He is the one who can carry those burdens. He is the one who can take you through. We look to the Lord for help. We don't look to man, ultimately. Yes, I, I know that we have people that help us on this earth in, that, in, in one context. I'm not saying that. It's a bigger picture that's being spoken of here. The Lord is the one who provides. And I find it fascinating that he uses the term the God of Jacob. You don't often see that term, the God of Jacob. It's not, it's not a, the most frequent name that we see in, in the Bible. But when it's used, it's usually very significant. It's a wonderful name, and it's very interesting because the term Jacob's not really an endearing term. The, the name means deceiver, doesn't it? Jacob, the, dece- the deceiver. Uh, God calls himself the God of Jacob, and I love that. This is the God of the universe, the highest one, the holy one, the one who sits enthroned above the heavens, angels crying out, holy, 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 on his throne. Can such a being really be concerned with us? This is what David cried out. What is man that you are mindful of him? This was his thoughts. And yet we find the very answer to that question in this name and this name alone. God is willing to have his name associated with a man, a sinful man at that, if you know the story of Jacob. He is the Lord of hosts, yes, but he is also the God of Jacob. He cares for the individuals. Not only that, he loves those individuals. He loves sinners. Not only that, he pardons and forgives and has mercy upon sinners. This is the God of Israel. It says, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. This is another reason now that we are told to put our hope in the Lord, to trust in the Lord. When we see God as the creator of all things, we have confidence that he is worthy, he is worthy of our trust, and he is also worthy of our praise. He is awesome in power, majestic in his holiness. He is the creator and everything else is separated from him as creation. He is totally transcendent in that regard, yet he is a God that has come down to join, really heaven to earth, if you could say it like that, to make a way for us to be saved and to come and dwell with him forever. He who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. It says, who keeps faith forever? Or your Bible may say, who keeps trust forever there? The idea here is that of truthfulness and faithfulness a lyric very similar to this line in one of those songs that we sang. I can't remember it now, but I remember when it was up there, I was thinking this is very similar. He who keeps faith or faithfulness forever. And this is again in contrast to the earthly princes that he talked about earlier. Even if their word is good, it only lasts until their last breath. The Lord's faithfulness will outlast everything on earth. It is eternal. His faithfulness is forever. It's only the Lord who can do that. Only the Lord. That's why we trust in him. It says, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Now this is again more actions that highlight his character. And this is why I love this psalm. The whole back end of it is just simply reason after reason after reason why we trust in the Lord. Here 
it, this is really referring to the compassion of God. The Lord is the one who executes justice. He's a righteous God. He has the right to execute justice. He also cares for the oppressed, gives food for the hungry. He is a God of compassion. He cares for the highest. He cares for the lowest. He makes no partiality between those two. This is the Lord we worship. Verse 7. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. And this is, again, a wonderful five-fold description we have here of God. And you can almost sense the intensity of the psalmist here as he builds just rapid fire now. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He says it five times over, each time attaching a different wonderful attribute or characteristic of God to the end of that holy name where he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. These are reasons why we praise the Lord. The first one, he sets the prisoners free. He is the great emancipator. The Lord comes to set people free. What does he say in Galatians? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that God set us free. This is what we call redemption. Uh, the picture of redemption that we find in the Bible going all the way back to the redemption out of Egypt as that first model of redemption is talked about in the terms of freedom and slavery. You may have picked up on that throughout the Bible, always freedom and slavery. In the physical with Israel being slaves in Egypt, being redeemed out of Israel and taken into the promised land, the New Testament then makes the same application that we were once slaves, bondage to sin, and thus through that Passover lamb, just like the Israel of old, we were redeemed into freedom through the Passover lamb being Jesus Christ. It's the same language, it's, it's redemption language, it's exodus language here. It's about setting people free opening the chains, loosening the chains, however you want to say it, this is one of the characteristics, the things that God does for us. He is the great emancipator. The second one, he opens the eyes of the blind. He is the great illuminator in that sense, you could say. He opens the eyes of the blind. He, he shows people the truth. His word is a light and a lamp. He is the light of the world. You see these descriptions of the Lord all over the place. It makes me think of that story in John 9, where he healed someone in the... Uh, the religious leaders are coming at him and saying, you know, why did you lie and say this? And he's, is the man a sinner? How could he heal? And he basically says, one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And that's obviously, he's speaking in the physical there, but the, the, the point of the story is the spiritual has also happened there in many, in many ways. This is language that is used in the spiritual sense too. We know it from the hymn, don't we? Amazing Grace. It's a very similar line. From, you know, I was blind, but now I see. This is a concept, and this is what we have being expressed here in this final part of this verse. The Lord. Uh, the next one. He is the Comforter. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over everything. Second Corinthians one verse three to four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we also ourselves are comforted by God. Slightly awkward verse to read that if you notice it because the word comfort is used in it so many times in that verse. It doesn't translate too well. But if you're going to take anything away from it, it's that God wants to comfort those who need it and he himself is that, the source of that comfort. 
But so the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down. That's what he does. He lifts up those who are down. He exalts the humble, yes, but this is also talking about those who are down because world, the world is getting them down. Sin is weighing heavy on them. A broken world is weighing heavy on them. And they were walking upright once, now they're walking down. And it, you can get the imagery that's being expressed here by that. The Lord is the one that comes alongside, that comforts and that lifts up. He is the comforter. The next one, the Lord loves the righteous. It says in verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. And you could say he is the great lover or rewarder because often we find that it's talked about he rewards the righteous. The Lord loves it when his people walk in righteousness because he himself is righteous. His commandments are righteousness. And as we walk in obedience to his commandments, we are walking in righteousness, if you could say it like that. We have no righteousness in ourselves. bear in mind. We're given Christ's righteousness. That's what, we, that's what we have that gets us into heaven. But in one sense, in a sanctification sense, as we walk in obedience to the world, we are living out righteousness. This is basically what the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount gets at. These are these principles. Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The righteous will shine forth as the sun. This is obviously speaking of the future in that context, but it's a wonderful picture. The last one, the Lord protects the strangers. The Lord is the great protector. He is the rewarder, the comforter, the protector, the illuminator, on and on. These are just such wonderful descriptions of God. It says he protects the stranger and the orphans, supports the fatherless and the widow. You may notice this is a very big theme throughout the scriptures, supporting the fatherless and the widows. These are two groups of people, orphans and widows, that are often singled out to be specially thought after and cared for by God. He cares deeply about them. Psalm 68 verse 5. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. That's just one of the things that God is often mentioned about the Lord. Second Corinthians 6, verse 16 to 18. It says, For we are the temple of the living God, speaking of the church, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and, they will, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's a reason why God revealed that we should refer to him as our father. You get the heart of a father coming through in this. Heart of a father, he loves those who are not loved in this world many times. That's one of the characteristics of the Lord. Even in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now this is, you often hear the phrase, you know, Christianity is not a religion, you know, and it's, it's a relationship. And yeah, I understand that, and it's absolutely true, it is a relationship. But in the proper context, it's also a religion. I mean, you know, James says it right here. It's a pure and undefiled religion. It's the only religion, ultimately, that God revealed to himself that he wanted it to be for people on this earth. Pure and undefiled religion will always visit orphans and widows in their distress. Track through the history of Christianity, you'll find that is a key theme throughout many, many years of Christian history, right back to the early church. He supports the fatherless and the widow, and then it says, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. He thwarts the way of the wicked. And this is, an, again, a slightly awkward uh, 
phrase here, thwarts, if you know what that is, but that basically means he's going to stop or destroy all the plans of the wicked. It refers to really that which is crooked being made straight. There will be a day when all the plans of the wicked will be undone. Makes me think very much this concept of when Jesus walked into the temple and he saw the wickedness in, in front of him and he overturned the tables in that act of judgment there. I think this is really picturing us in the end times when he does come in his glory, he will judge the living and the dead and any plans of any wicked will not prosper. They won't even stand in his sight. He will judge the wicked and he will do it with righteousness and he has the right to do that. The Lord will reign, final verse, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So after hearing all these wonderful descriptions of God, and remember, all of these descriptions were given as reasons for why you should start the psalm like it started. Why we say hallelujah, why we praise the Lord, why all my soul, he says, all my soul, praise the Lord. I'll praise you while I have my, with all my life, while I have uh, breath, while I'm living, basically, is what he's saying here because God is just so wonderful. And he's just listed a few things here. There's going to be five more Psalms after this that are going to do the same, pretty much the exact same thing all the time. So after hearing this uh, revelation of our character of God, our hearts should be blessed when we contemplate that this is the one who will be ruling us forever and ever. This is the one who will be administering justice on the earth, one who cares for the lowly, one who has moral character that cannot go wrong just on and on this psalm is getting at who God is and so I love the way it just ends look at how it ends final three words or one word in Hebrew praise the Lord hallelujah he started with a hallelujah he went on just to describe the glories of God exhorting us not to put our trust in men because all men fall short they're not even a speck in the eye of God in that sense in a comparative sense he goes through all of those wonderful characteristics of what God will do, who God is, how he acts in this earth, and then he ends simply by saying, hallelujah. And that is the proclamation of praise that will really echo throughout the whole earth, particularly when the Lord comes to rule on this earth. That is the proclamation of praise that is resounding in heaven, even as we speak, and will be for all eternity. And really, that's all I'm going to share with you tonight, but let me just read to you those words of the hallelujah chorus again to end I think they're just so wonderful. King of kings, Lord of lords, he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.